We're at a place where we know a lot about the problems, but what we need more work on are solutions to those problems. One of the things I'm most proud about in this work is that we identify a solution, a practical, actionable solution that we can start to make a difference in people's lives. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. Imagine you're an employee at a large company and you notice that one of your colleagues is engaging in unethical behavior. You know that speaking about this behavior could jeopardize your own career, but you feel a strong moral obligation to do so. So you gather up your courage and raise your concerns with your boss. Unfortunately, instead of being praised for your integrity and bravery, you're met with retaliation. You're ostracized by your colleagues, excluded from important meetings, and even passed over for a promotion. This is a reality and fear that both men and women face when raising ethical concerns in the workplace. The difference between genders becomes apparent when women achieve positions of power. Nancy Rothbard's research reveals that women in power who raise ethical concerns face a greater risk of retaliation compared to their male counterparts. Consequently, women who speak out about ethical issues are more vulnerable to negative consequences, including marginalization or job loss. In this episode, we'll delve into Nancy's research on gender in the workplace and explore the unique challenges that women face when it comes to speaking up about ethical concerns. We'll also discuss strategies for creating a more inclusive and supportive workplace culture where everyone can speak up about ethical issues without fear of retaliation, regardless of your gender. So without further ado, let's welcome Nancy Rothbard to The Ripple Effect. So Nancy, you've done a lot of research on gender in the workplace. How did it come about that the topic of female moral objectors ended up on your radar? Well, Dan, I've done a lot of work, as you said, over the years on both gender and on voicing issues in organizations. In fact, actually, my first academic publication was um, called Out on a Limb, and, and it was about women who were raising gender equity issues in their organizations and what made them more willing to do so. And we found that the, the role that they were in actually conferred legitimacy for raising these issues. So being in HR made women more willing to raise gender equity issues because they felt like that was part of their role. And what happened was my student and co-author, you know, flash forward to 2020, uh, my student and co-author, Tim, was interested in morality in organizations. And when he came to talk to me about this project, it was really a fabulous intersection of our interests, my interests on gender and voice and his on moral objection. And, and so you also found out that women in power uh, are more likely to face retaliation when they voice ethical concerns more so than men in power. Can you break down that finding and what you believe accounts for the difference here? Sure. Um, as you said, we found that high-powered women, when they raised ethical concerns, experience more retaliation than their their male counterparts. 
And the reason that we found for this is that they were perceived as being out of control. And what was really interesting uh, about this for us is that a lot of the past research on gender assumes that uh, one of the reasons that women get backlash is because they're, they're perceived as not warm and friendly. But we found actually it wasn't warmth perceptions that was the problem. It, it was self-control. And the reason for that is, uh, frankly, people don't like moral objectors. They, they, whether they're male or female, people, people think that moral objectors are seen as rocking the boat, as violating expectations, as disrupting things. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is that people think that moral objectors are often selfish, actually. Um, and and it, it's kind of interesting. They, they feel like they're selfishly demonstrating their own moral superiority or you know, putting their own ideological preferences um, onto other people uh, or the organization in this case. And, you know, actually, a lot of the literature talks about how moral objectors are sometimes viewed as self-righteous or arrogant. Um, and the perception is um, exacerbated by the idea that it's somehow seen as socially inappropriate that you are raising these objections, right? You're disrupting things. You're, you're making waves. And so when moral objectors violate expectations by, by raising these concerns, other people often think that they're they're doing this to advance their own moral ab- agenda and that there's something selfish about that um, that costs uh, the group something. So let's take a moment and talk about this idea of perceived self-control. What does it really mean in, in this context? Yeah, so self-control is, uh, what we mean by self-control is that it's either the ability or the lack of self-control is the inability to restrain those selfish or antisocial impulses, right? Uh, for the sake of what's perceived as best for the group. So the kinds of things that we would ask is, you know, um, does, does Dan lack self-discipline? Is Dan bad at resisting temptation? You know, does Dan act without thinking through alternatives? Uh, and l- what we find is that lower self-control, we, uh, we actually did some supplementary analyses where we find that lower self-control is associated with more higher selfishness and lower other orientedness. So you're, you're not as concerned about others if you're seen as having low self-control. So there seem to be uh, a variety of gender stereotypes at play here. Based on the work that you've done, what are some of the strongest ones that tend to influence how women are perceived in the workplace? Yeah, that's a really important question, Dan. I, I think that some of the gender stereotypes that are really important when we think about women in the workplace are stereotypes around around other orientedness, around communality, right? Are we doing things on behalf of the group? Are we pro-social? Are we in it for everyone? And that plays out here as well in that it's related to perceptions of, of self-control. Um, but what, what also you often see in many other uh, types of work on gender at, at, in the workplace is are the perceptions of warmth that women need to be warm and friendly. You know, you, you've seen uh, or you've heard about how women need to smile more. Um, and, and that's sort of an expectation of women that they are more connected to others in the workplace. And, and that's really very hard oftentimes because it's, it's an additional 
uh, layer of responsibility that women have to really um, engage with other people while they're having to be highly competent at their jobs at the same time. And so what we add in this paper is is actually this additional um, expectation around self-control that plays out, I think, in important ways. Uh, How does retaliation show up in this context as well? And and can it tend to be subtle? Yeah. So um, retaliation was the dependent variable we looked at. So we were looking at the consequences of raising moral concerns and how do people react to you? And retaliation was was what we looked at. And Retaliation can be can take a lot of different forms. It can be work related. Um, you you could be demoted. You know, if 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 it's at an extreme case, um, but it can also take less extreme forms and and you know social kind of norm uh, types of uh, functions like you know people spreading gossip or rumors uh, about the person or what have you. Um, it also is important because retaliation occurs when people want to either silence, discredit, or discourage people from behaving the way that they're behaving in the future, right? So it's 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 trying to maintain order and compliance in the face of um, a behavior that's seen as problematic. And so when we looked at retaliation in this paper and in this study, we looked at it in a couple of different ways. So we we had a couple of studies where we which which were archival studies that were done in the field, and they they asked people if they had experienced retaliation in a lot of different forms, right? So they we, it asked them about you know did you, if you've ever experienced retaliation because you raise health or safety concerns, right, or you raise issues around fraud, um, or you um, you know, engage in any kind of whistleblowing or, or whether you raise issues around equal opportunity or whether people had raised issues around sexual harassment uh, or even disagreeing with management decisions, right? So it was even as broad as that. And so that study actually looked at whether you experienced retaliation. We turned it around in some of our other studies and we asked people, have you ever retaliated against somebody else, right? And so uh, in the, in those studies, we asked things like, did you retaliate against, we gave them a scenario and we said, did you retaliate against that, that person? Or did you suggest that they were out of line or did you spread rumors or did you discourage this behavior or did you indicate that that behavior was inappropriate? So those were the types of, of ways that we operationalized retaliation in, in some of the other studies. Can you walk us through the Kevin and Kate experiment? Sure. So our fourth study in the paper that we published was, uh, as you say, the Kevin and Kate experiment, where we um, we uh, gave a um, we gave participants uh, a, a task where we asked them to brainstorm different ideas independently, uh, and we could said they could use the internet to source ideas, and then they were they were they were supposed to interact with a, a team a set of teammates to develop the ideas. Um, and what happened was when they went to do, to interact with the teammates, we had a, um, a, a an artificial teammate, Kevin or Kate, uh, and Kevin or Kate then um, w- was either a high power person or an average power person, and then um, we 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 had Kevin or Kate say either 
I must point out that the moral problem, a moral problem with this task, and I can't complete it. Um, asking users to use the internet to look up ideas could lead to plagiarism. And this is a serious moral issue and, and must be stopped, right? So in one version, Kevin or Kate said that. In the other version, Kevin or Kate said, because it might come back to hurt uh, the, the platform and any participants in the study, I have to point out there's a moral problem with the task and I can't complete it. Asking users to use the internet to look up ideas could lead to plagiarism, which could put people on the platform at risk. And this is a serious problem and must negatively, it might negatively impact the platform and the workers or get us in trouble. And it has to be stopped in order to protect the platform and its workers from unfair retribution. So, so as you see, we had a moral objection in both cases, but in the one case, it was sort of what we call the standard frame. And in the other case, it was what we call the organizational frame where we're giving much more explanation and rationale about how it could hurt the organization and the people in the organization if we were to proceed with this problematic behavior, right? And so um, what we then did is we had the participants who received Kevin or Kate's moral objection, we had them then respond um, to Kevin or Kate, and we coded their responses for whether they were they were retaliatory or not, right? And so retaliatory messages were ones where they ended up scolding or disparaging or criticizing Kevin or Kate uh, for their behavior. And, and so like an example of uh, one of our favorite quotes uh, from the uh, responses was, um, you are a petulant little child. You need to grow up and get a grip. <laughs> um so that was an example of a negative retaliatory response. And, and then, you know, we also got, we coded positive responses. So some of the responses that, that the uh, Kevin or Kate received were ones that thanked them or condoned their, their behavior. Um, you know, one of uh, an example of that was, this is a really important point, Kevin or Kate, thanks for bringing it up. So, you know, we, you know, we, we had a variety of, of ways people responded based on who the person was, what their level of power was and whether they used an organizational frame or not. And so that that interaction between those factors really led to quite a disparity in how people responded. And are there ways where you can even reduce the potential for retaliation in some of these circumstances? Yeah. So so one of the things that we found that was really important was when participant or when when Kevin or Kate <laughs> used the organizational frame or uh, where, where they kind of gave more of an explanation about the benefits to the organization and to the group, retaliation was lowered across the board for men and for women. The only people who did not experience higher levels of retaliation when they used a standard frame were the high-powered men. So the high-powered men were able to just do the sort of, this is wrong and we shouldn't do it, right? Lower-powered men and women and even and even high-powered women needed to use the, uh, the organizational frame in order for them to experience lower levels of retaliation and be, and, and be more accepted in terms of what they were saying. What particular recommendations then would you have for organizations themselves around that type of a remedy? So, Dan, I think it's really important that when we find things like this, that we don't put all of the burden on low-powered individuals or, in, in this case, certain groups of individuals like women. 
Um, and so our recommendations actually are more um, broad. So what we would say is we encourage all moral objectors, regardless of their gender or structural power, to use an organizational frame when, when raising moral objections. It's going to make everybody uh, sound more in control, and it is going to really help ensure that gendered outcomes are reduced. Uh, and, and it really increases people's receptivity to your moral objection, you know, from, uh, you know, across all um, ends of the continuum. The second thing I, I would suggest is that we, we train people with how to do this, right? We need to provide examples for uh, employees to, with how to, how to frame some, th- these types of moral objections. And, and to really, um, I guess, third is to help employees really recognize their own bias and learn to reframe moral objections that they encounter, right? I mean, I think we need to raise awareness that we are all doing this. Men and women are doing this, right? Women were retaliating as as much as men were against high-powered women uh, when they were framing things in this way, right? Not framing things uh, with with an organizational frame. And so, you know, we we really need to to kind of raise that awareness to help with debiasing. And I think that the last thing is just highlighting the benefits that moral objections can provide to organizations. Because as I started with, you know, people don't like moral objectors. They feel like they're rocking the boat. They feel like, you know, this is just, um, you know, they're a sticky wheel. And how do we, how do we make people understand that raising moral objections is not just about pursuing, you know, a, a selfish agenda? It's often about pursuing a selfless agenda and one that does benefit the organization as a whole. So when you're thinking more broader scale, when it, comes to correcting these types of imbalances, do you think it's better to focus on changing the system or changing the individual behavior? Yeah, that's a really tough one because I think that we have more leverage over individual behaviors often as individual actors, right? So, you know, as, as a, as a woman who is in a power position, it's important to know that this is a tool that you can use, right, to level the playing field. But again, I think that to make systemic change, we really need to do more and we need to raise that awareness uh, at a broader level. Uh, and, and so I, th- I think that it's both and, quite frankly. So what are some of the, the other big questions that we need to look at right now around the topic of women in leadership? So I actually think there's a really interesting opportunity here, Dan, because what we, we're at a place in our scholarship where we know a lot about the problems. We've documented the problems, lack of representation, the leaky pipeline, the glass ceiling, the glass cliff, subtle forms of bias, benevolent sexism, lack of mentorship and sponsorship, right? Like all of those are things that we know are problems. But what we need more work on is, or are, solutions <laughs> to those problems. Um, one of the things I'm most proud about uh, in this work is that we we identify a solution, a practical, actionable solution that we can start to make a difference in people's lives and their effectiveness in organizations. And so, you know, more work that examines women's careers more work that examines how we can get both men and women to be allies in addressing these types of issues. I think that those are the opportunities that we have 
to really make a difference in terms of women's leadership. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.